following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, John 17, we're going to end our series today that we've been in since the beginning of the year on redemptive relationships. You know, it's been an interesting, uh, throughout this last, um, you know, however many weeks it's been that we've been in this series. So many of you that have been with us for a while have been just like, man, this has been such a good series. I'm so glad we did this. And, um, and it's been a bit humbling because it reminds me that generally when the preacher preaches about 72 hours, you forget everything he said. That's just kind of the basic thing because I preached this exact same series six years ago. Um, and, and matter of fact, one gal came up and she said, I have notes from this sermon back in six years ago, but I, uh, we were talking about this in our series. The guys were just going on about, man, this series has been so good. And you know, it's been so, I mean, this stuff has been so precise and caring for the people. And I, so I preached this six years ago and they looked at me kind of funny and you, you, did, you did, I was like, yeah, I did. I did. I did. And, and one of the guys said, Dave Rubel said it very clearly. He said, I think the impact right now is because of what we've been in for the last two years in our nation. In our world, right? This chaos and division everywhere. And as we've talked about what God created us for, we talked about what sin's done, God's plan for redemption and restoration, as well as God's plan for how we can be people that are different and operate different in the church. It's, it's had a, it's had a unique impact. And so with a sense of joy, we're, we're ending today with this series because we believe that God has been at work and we want to end it in a, in the place where I think is the best place was in John 17. You know, the, the challenge is what we've done through the series is we've tried to lay out a biblical framework for how to walk in restorative, redemptive relationships. We try to talk about what do you do? How do you maintain these relationships when they go bad? And how do you protect them from going bad? Right? So last Sunday's in particular, what you're going to notice is every sermon has had some impact that, or thing that we have to be about doing that are hard. I've got to confess sin if I've sinned against a brother or sister. I need to go to them and talk to them about their sin if they've sinned against me. We as a church need to be protective of the church from division and from being from divisive people. And there are things that God has given us a plan to do and given us some biblical framework, but there's a caution that I want to give us. We can have all the biblical framework necessary. We can put all the pieces in place. But listen, if we are not absolutely dependent upon the risen Christ, this stuff will do nothing for us. Right? We can have all the right plans in place, but if we are not leaning in consistently to the hope of the gospel and marveling at the love of God found in Christ, this stuff isn't going to work. See, old habits die really hard. And I can just tell you from experience pastorally that generally what happens is people repent they then get counsel, they change, they start applying the gospel. Then they get strong again in their flesh and they go back to sinning in ways they never thought they'd ever do again. And I think that's true for bodies of believers. That we can get strong and kind of feel like we got this thing together and suddenly that little bit of pride creeps in and what happens, old habits begin to fall back in again and we just begin to sin against each other in odd ways because separation is what is natural. Unity is not natural. Unity has to be empowered by God's Spirit, and we we desperately need that. So we've got to be people that just continue to say our relationships are for the glory of God, and we want to submit ourselves to King Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about 
this morning, right? That's what we want to be in John chapter 17. So here's the big idea. If you're, if you're new with us, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm, I'm Dave York. I'm the senior pastor here. And in your outline, you've got a big idea, kind of the idea that we want to hit on in the sermon. And here's the, here's the idea that we want to hit this morning. When we live in unity and when we love one another, we glorify God, revealing the reality of Jesus to the, to our, to the world. Let me say that again. When we live in unity and when we love one another, we glorify God, revealing the reality of Jesus to the world. All right, so let's stand together. We're going to read John 17, 20 through 26. <clears throat> and we stand because this is God's word. We believe it is true and we submit ourselves to it. John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know, these that you have sent, these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. Let's pray. Father, these things are truly in the deep end of the pool here. And we need, we need you to give us eyes to see. Lord, I, I'm, I'm crying out to you as the pastor of these people that you would help us see what, what it means that, that on earth we could experience relationships like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are experiencing right now. So Father, only you can do this. Only you can open our eyes and only you can help us apply it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> now John 17 is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. Um, it is like the Holy Grail of biblical text. It is... It's unlike anything that you've ever read because it's in this text that you get an inside peek at Jesus' relationship with God his Father. Jesus in John 17 is praying to his Father. This chapter is called the High Priestly Prayer because it's in this chapter that Jesus is in his role as our faithful and merciful high priest and he's pleading with God about certain things. And you, you would notice if you go back in this chapter, in the early verses, that Jesus prayed about the time in his life when he would give himself as a sacrifice for his people. And he prayed to God about this in very intimate terms. You know, we get to be a fly on the wall, if we will, to get to hear Jesus pray what he's praying to his Father. In the middle verses, he turns his attention to the disciples that are near him. These 12 men that have that have walked with him and been with him, and he prays that God would protect them, that God would keep them safe, and he prays that God would make them holy. But then in the verse, in the section that we read, is when Jesus prayed 
for those who would believe in him as their savior because of the disciples, the guys that are with him, because of their words. In other words, verses 20 through 26 are, are the moments in this text when we see our faces. You, if you were to go back in time, you would be hearing Jesus praying for us who are in Roseburg, Oregon right now in the 21st century. This is the moment in this prayer when the Son of God is seeing you in His mind's eye and He's asking God something for you, for me, for this church. God, the Son of God is seeing us at CLF in these verses. It's simply stunning to think about that. And what He's praying about is for people who would hear the disciples' gospel message and would believe. And that's us. We are the people who have read the words of Scripture, have heard the gospel preached, and have come to believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is for us. And we put our faith in Jesus. So we have to look at this and say, what is Jesus' desire for us? I mean, what would the Son of God pray for? If He's praying anything in the world, what's He praying for us? And you're going to notice the very first thing He's praying for us is point number one, is that Jesus wants His people to be united in Him. You're going to see this throughout the first few verses of this. The first thing you'll see is he wants us to be one. He wants us to be united. Notice the way he says this in verses 21 through 23. In verse 21, he wrote that we may be one. Now listen to this phrase. Just as God is in Christ and Christ is in God, that we might be in God. In other words, Jesus says, Lord, I want these people in the 21st century who have heard the gospel message and believed it, that they would be one together just like I am one with you. That's stunning news. And then verse 22, he goes on to say something that's even more stunning, that the glory that God had given Jesus, Jesus gave to us so that we might be unified or one. I mean, just... The glory that God gave Jesus, the same glory in Matthew 17 when he pulled back the veil of his humanity to reveal his glory, that glory Jesus gave to his people. That's stunning news. But then it goes on, verse 23, Christ in us, God in Christ, that we may be perfectly one. Now, when you read these verses, you'll notice something. The way Jesus prayed for us about this oneness and this unity helps us realize he's not praying for us to have some kind of, some kind of sappy, hypocritical, compromised unity. He's talking about something deep and unique and something that can be, be experienced in the here and the now. So just think, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, had us in mind, prayed these things for us to be able to experience in some rich, deep way like He and the Father experience. That's remarkable news. It's so deep that this relationship that we could have together will mirror Jesus' relationship with God. You just simply cannot get more intimate and more united than Jesus' relationship with God. There's no other relationship like this in the universe. Perfectly one without any disconnect from sin. Perfectly one in essence, purpose, and love. No separation, no disharmony, no discord, and no chance of it. Perfectly intimate 
perfectly together. That's remarkable news. But when you read verse 22, something to just ring off in your mind, because this verse is stunning, that, that God would give Christ glory, the glory of God, and Christ would give us the glory of God so we could experience this type of unity. So we have to say, what is that? D.A. Carson in what R.C. Sproul said is the best commentary ever written on the book of John said these words about the glory that Jesus talks about. He said, glory is the manifestation of God's character in a revelatory context. Jesus mediated or gave his followers the glory of God personally to those who might believe in him. I mean, this means that when when we believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, he gives us the manifestation of God's character. He personally delivers to you and to me and to the church his glory. Now, Now, the reason that's important to relationships is because it is impossible to have relationships that mirror the Godhead without the character of God in us. We can't do it. It's impossible to have relationships that mirror the Godhead without the glory of God starting those relationships and empowering those relationships. In other words, this is again, this is not low-level, sappy unity. We're talking unity that is birthed in and from the glory of God and a unity which mirrors the oneness in the Godhead and is empowered by the glory of God. That is, that is stunning. Stunning news that the God of the universe would say, I want people, my people, to be so unified that I'm going to deposit into them the very thing I've been trying to protect all of these years from from eternity past to eternity future, and they will be empowered to do these things by my glory. That is remarkable. It's just remarkable. As you can tell, this text will preach. I mean, it will preach Now, what's crazy is Jesus is giving us an understanding that this isn't something we just experience in the future, that this can be experienced in the here and now. Verse 23 tells us this, that we can experience this oneness now because of our oneness with Christ and his oneness with God. Notice how he says it, Christ in us, God in Christ And us in God gives us the hope and the assurance that this can be experienced. See, when we believe in Jesus, we're literally in Christ. We're united with Christ. In the summer, we're going to talk about this in our series on Romans 5 through 8. On being, what does it mean to be united in Christ? Christ is in us and we are in Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. We abide in Him because He abides in us. And because we are in Christ, God is in us because God is in Christ. So this, this tells us something. These relationships that Jesus is dealing with in John 17 are relationships between Christians based on our relationship with God through Christ. This is why we can know that Jesus isn't speaking here of compromised 
unity. He's speaking of a unity that is so profound, so deep, that it cannot happen apart from the glory of God being manifested through Christ into each of us, and it cannot happen apart from our unity in Christ. See, this tells us that these relationships are Christianly. It tells us that this can, this lasting, profound, unified relationships must begin and they must end with Christ. Christ must be the heir about the relationships if we are to walk in unity and harmony of the Godhead. It's interesting. The Apostle John writes about the same type of thing later in one of his books in 1 John when he wrote these words. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you. Now look what he says. So that you too may have fellowship with us. So you might go, how can I hang out with John the Apostle and we can really have true fellowship? And here's what he says. I'm inviting you to do this because my fellowship, our fellowship, the Apostle's fellowship, the followers of Christ's fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he says is, we're fellowshipping with God. We're asking you to come join us in this fellowship with God. And by doing so, we have a relationship that is unified in the fellowship and unity found in the Godhead. Come fellowship with us as we are fellowshipping with God the Father. D.A. Carson goes on to explain what this type of unity is when he wrote these words. This unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. We like to do that. We love to take it and say unity means let's get down lower and just kind of find some. And what he's going to say is, but rather it happens by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. By love that is joyfully self-sacrificing. By an undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged. By self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. This is why we must remember that our relationships are not primarily about our personal needs or our personal interests. They are about mainly the glory of God. When we believe that the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ, and when we are mesmerized with Christ, one of the byproducts is we will have unified relationships with those who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It will be deep. It will be lasting it will be it will be intimate because relationships begin and they end with Christ see listen and what's crazy is when you read this section of scripture and you see Jesus is talking about relationships that mirror the godhead in the here and now you might think this is a pipe dream there's no way it could ever happen i don't know if god wants this and then you look back in the text and you realize wait G- Jesus 2000 years ago was praying this for us Meaning, why would he be praying this if he didn't desire it for us and believe it was possible? So when you read John 17 and you see this unity, he wants us to be unified. What you're reading is something fascinating. He wants this for us and he will empower us to do so. But the second thing you're going to notice in the text that Jesus prays for is the impact of our unity on the world around us. And that's our second point that you're going to notice in the text. Jesus mentions this two times. And it could not be more clear. I mean, it's plain. I mean, this is so, this is where the Bible is clear. In verse 21, he says, 
All these things may happen. We be one that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. Verse 23, that the world may know that God sent Jesus and that he loved the world like he loves Jesus. And these words cannot be more clear and more compelling, but they also cannot be more challenging. When our relationships in the church mirror the Godhead because of Jesus' work in us, it tells the world that God sent Jesus. I mean, think about that. We'll talk about this more later, but think about that. It says something to the world. It says that God loved, God sent Jesus, that God loves people like God loves Jesus. And it shows the world that this love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. That God is at work in us doing something miraculous to transform us. Now, see, you'll, you'll remember why this is important. In the early part of this series, if you were with us, we showed how God created us to live in community, to live, to love one another, and He made us to live in unity, unity, to live in love and service for one another. But sin entered in, and when sin came in, what happened? Separation. Marriages had conflicts, family had conflicts, nations have conflicts. Right now, we're here in Russia clattering their swords. All that is is genera- that's Genesis chapter three, just being on display again. That's all it is. Right? Churches had, everywhere you look, there's conflict. We can't walk out the door without smelling the air of conflict. But when Jesus, the Son of God, came to the world, lived a perfect life in our place, died for our sins, rose again from the dead, He did a restorative work in everybody who would believe in Him. He not only reconciled us to God, but He then gave us a ministry of reconciliation and peacemaking. Meaning, we are helping other people be reconciled to God through Christ, through the gospel message, and we are going to be reconciled with others that we might not be in peace with, might be in conflict with. And then as well, we're helping people navigate through conflict together so they might be at peace with one another. God gave us a unique ministry. Now that's in stark contrast to the world, where their ministry is division and conflict. Our ministry is one of reconciliation. So our, our unity in Christ, when we walk it out, is a display of God's power. It is so unique because it's literally transforming us from the inside out. See, our natural sinful character is to separate. It's to fight. It's to argue. It's to take our own, to own what we want. It's me, myself, and I. We need a power outside of ourselves that is so rare and so matchless that it transforms us inwardly as it works on us from outside. God working in us. D.A. Carson again wrote this, This display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that the believer's witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus is truly the revealer whom the Father has sent. In other words, what that means is, when we walk in unity, there's no other explanation for it. Except Jesus. See, all around people see disunity, hate, and anger. But as Christians who believe in the glory of Christ, we are transformed by Christ. His love compels us. His love constrains us. And it overruns our ambitions and our aims. So that when others watch us hang out with one another and see how we interact in the church together and how we talk together, how we serve each other in the, in, how we serve each other and care for each other's needs, they see a work of God that is real and it is compelling. Now, this should tell you something about our relationships. 
and our unity. It tells us that it's real and it's observable. You could also put the other way. Disunity is also real and observable. I, I like to do like opposites in the Bible when I read them. So when I read like, you know, Jesus said, if you walk in unity and oneness, it reveals that God sent Jesus. I've asked myself often, so does that mean when we walk in disunity, it makes the world see then think that God didn't send Jesus? Our unity is something that should be real. It's observable. People should see it. You know, Acts chapter 2 is a, is a book in the Bible and a section of the Bible that many modern-day Christians go, man, I just wish we could get back to Acts 2. We could just hang out together. We could pray together. We could do the things that they did daily and just have so much fun hanging out together and enjoying the fruit of what God's doing in our lives. And that sounds really wonderful and great and all those kind of things. And in the world they lived in, they could do this. But notice the effect of that that gospel effect on their lives when they were eating meals together, they were talking together, praying together. Notice verse 47. It says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now you have to look at the beginning of the text and you go, the Christians were hanging out together. They were eating meals together. They were going to the temple and praying together. They were sharing with each other as anybody had need among themselves. And it seems like that they're in their own little Christian commune doing life together. How did non-Christians find out about this? How did the Lord add to their number? I'll tell you how. They were observable. Non-Christians were not only just peeking into the windows to see how they were doing life, they were bringing non-Christians along to say, can I, can I, we're going to have dinner together. You want to come and hang out with my Christian friends? And they watched a unity so compelling that it was way different than what the world they were living in. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now see, what this shows us is their unity was real and observable. Their relationships were real and observable. And God was using those relationships to have an effect. Our lives and our relationships matter to Christian witness. I mean, remember that when, when we, we must preach the gospel, we must declare the gospel. But don't ever forget, we need to demonstrate the gospel. There are a lot of people in this world, when they think of evangelism, they think evangelism means we just shout it out from the mountaintops and somehow the gospel is going to land on people and they're going to get it and the whole thing. And they don't think to themselves that their tone, their demeanor, the way they're interacting with others does not reveal and demonstrate the gospel as well. We must declare the gospel. We must demonstrate the gospel. God uses the foolishness of the word preached to bring people to faith, but he also uses the transformed lives of his people to reveal the reality that the Son of God has indeed come. See, how we relate to one another is a matter of mission. It's a matter of the glory of God. It's a matter of the gospel. I think Bruce Milne really nailed this in his commentary when he wrote these words. The local church is the obvious point of application. A group of Christians who are so knit together in the love of God that others can say of them, look how they love each other, is a church where the gospel will be the power of God for salvation. Evangelism is a community act. I love that statement. It is, the, it is the proclamation of the church's relationships as well as its convictions. The preacher is only the spokesperson of the community. The gospel proclaimed from the pulpit is either confirmed and hence immeasurably enhanced, or it is contradicted and hence immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships in the pews. 
In this sense, every Christian is a witness. Every time we gather together, we either strengthen or weaken evangelistic appeal of our church by the quality of our relationships with our fellow church members. So listen, if you think watching simply on live stream is going to get that done, you're fooling yourself. What goes on here as we gather together and as we walk out together is a display of the power of God. It's a work of the mission of the gospel. And what we preach and as it's applied, it is only revealed as it's applied to the rest of the world. And if we think the gospel is compelling, which we do, and if we think the gospel is something that only God can do in us, which we do, and if we think the gospel is the only unifying power in the world, which we do, then what we do in the pews is going to matter to that revelation to the world. See, what is compelling about this portion of Jesus' prayer is it just feels heaven-like, doesn't it? I mean, you read it and you think, man, for real? I mean, I, I mean to, you mean I can have relationships with other Christians that if there's a conflict, we can solve it. We can forgive each other and we can still walk in unity? Yes. And you can almost feel Jesus talking about this in verses 24 and 25 when he talks about, Father, I I want these to, 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 to get, to see the fulfillment of my glory. I want, I want them to see all of this. I want them to experience this. And there's this, there's this glory that Christ wants us to be, just to experience. And part of, and this is, he's talking about this unity experience. This section of Jesus' prayer in what he desires for us is breathtaking. I mean, it it is, it's breathtaking, but it's also remarkably hopeful. See, because of the glory of God revealed in Jesus, you and I, Christians, this church, we have the hope and the power to live as one, to live in unity. And we have the hope and the power that we can be used by God to reveal the incredible transforming power of Jesus to a world that desperately needs him as we walk in unity together. Do you, do you see now why through this series I have talked about it's gonna, there's some hard work that has to be done. And my, my question to us is, is in the gospel worth that? In the glory of God worth that? Husbands and wives, when you have conflict, do, are you aware that the gospel is at stake? Parents, are you aware that the way you raise your children, that the gospel's at stake? Singles in your friendships and relationships, are you aware the gospel's at stake in how you handle those things? See, if the glory of God and the mission of the gospel is important to us, then Jesus' plan for restoration, Jesus' plan for reconciliation, Jesus' plan of how we operate in relationships should matter to us. Now, what's crazy is when I read this section of Jesus' prayer, I, I cannot help but thank God for our church. I, we have experienced an unusual season of peace for a long, long time. I mean, I, I, I cannot put my finger on the reason why. God has been kind. That's all I want to say. My question as I read this is, how, how do we enjoy keep, keep enjoying this? And at the same time, How can we have this kind of impact in our world? And there's three things I want to give to you. So the last point of the day is how can we do this? The first thing is, it's obvious in my mind, we've got to submit to Jesus. Right? And you might say, well, I am. I'm I'm a Christian. Well, that's great. We'll talk about that in a minute. Right? But listen, unified, joy-filled relationships that mirror the relationships in the Godhead do not happen apart from God. They don't. 
And we've got to understand, this is not going to be something we can willpower ourselves to. This is something that only God can do. God has to be at work. So listen, to be reconciled to God and to be restored to God, your God-given design, is the first place you've got to start. If you're not a Christian, you need to trust Christ. If you want to be reconciled to other people and have good relationships with them, you've got to start with a good relationship with God. And so this morning, we would tell you to submit yourself to Jesus. Be, be a follower of Christ, right? But if you are a Christian, maybe you've said, I've trusted in Jesus, and this isn't what I'm experiencing, or how do I do this? My, my question to you would be, are you submitted to do what your king has asked you to do, regardless of the consequences? See, are you eager... To forgive others because you have been forgiven much by your king. Are you willing to take the log out of your own eye first before you go attack somebody else for the speck that is in their eye? Are you willing to confess your sin to someone who sins against you knowing that doing that they might disrespect you? They might not think highly of you anymore. But it's the thing that God asks you to do. Are you willing to go talk to somebody who sinned against you rather than talking about them to somebody else? Are you willing to go do the hard work of sitting down and saying, can we talk about something that happened the other day? I was a bit offended by this and I don't know how to bring it up, but I just got to bring it up. Are you willing to do those things? Are you eager to be a peacemaker? To sit down with people and say, I want to bring, I want to have peace. I don't want to keep fighting. See, Our king throughout this series has been calling us to something. I don't know if you've caught it. He's been calling us to make hard work. We've got to remember, we're meeting in the middle. He's calling us to something. So the question is, as a child of God, are you willing to say, yeah, King Jesus, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to obey and leave the results in your hands. I'm willing to do what you ask me to do with grace. I'm willing to do this with looking to Christ, trusting you to do the right thing before you. I'm willing to do that. See, our tendencies are, we want to make up all the excuses, right? They won't listen. It's never helped before. I don't want to, I don't want to stir up the hornet's nest. I mean, we do all these things. The challenge is, none of those excuses are in the Bible. Jesus didn't say, confess your sin to your brother if it worked last time. He said, if you sin against your brother, you go to him and you ask him to forgive him. You, you confess your sin. So the first place we got to start is we got to submit ourselves to Christ. That's each of us. If we're going to maintain this unity that God's given us and and protect it, we've got to be willing to do the hard thing in the power of Christ. It's going to be tough. There's there's I'm telling you, um, the glory the the church of the the cycle of a church is glory than suffering, glory than suffering, glory than suffering. We've been in a season of glory. Guess what? I'm always looking for. Where's the suffering coming? Right? I mean, you can feel you you know something's coming, and we've just got to be prepared. The other reason we've said it before is one Sunday away from a conflict, because Dave York walked in the door. Okay, you walked in the door and our sin would love to do nothing else than go in the parking lot. Christ calls us to something way different. So are we submitted to our king? Second thing, we need to remember that God loves us and that's satisfying enough. Friends, this is so critical and I want to, I want to say this very delicately, but here's one of the challenges we face as sinners. Our tendency is to look for something horizontally that can only be fulfilled vertically. So an example is we naturally look to others for love and approval and acceptance in its completion when that can only be found in Christ. See, if we want to experience joyful, unified relationships, 
we need to continue to let the gospel of Christ capture us. Because the gospel of Christ says two things we can never forget. It says that we have been loved by God in Christ more than we could ever dream. And it says we are more approved and accepted by God in Christ than we could ever imagine. See, God sending Jesus to die for our sins is the greatest act of love that we will ever experience. No one on earth can do this for us and can give us that type of love. So if we're looking for that type of sacrificial, deep, perfect love from somebody in the room or horizontally, we will be sorely disappointed. This is why husbands and wives in marriages, you can we can say, I don't like this woman anymore because she's not meeting my needs. My response is, she never will. Or the dude says, I look, she does not give me the acceptance and approval and respect that I need, therefore I'm out. My response is, hey dude, she never will. There's only one being in the universe who has said, I will always, always approve of you because of what my son did. I will always, always love you because of what my son did. Your wife and husband doesn't say that. Your children don't say that. And your closest associates most certainly don't say that. So if we're looking horizontally for what can only be gained vertically, as Johnny Lee saying, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. I mean, we're in a bad spot. God loves you more than anybody else ever will. And he approves of you more than anyone else ever will. And if you believe in Christ, listen, you're more loved than you could ever dream. And you're more forgiven than you could ever imagine. No one can give you that except Jesus. See, when we're content in God's love, we can then extend God's love to others. Again, D.A. Carson wrote it this way. The unity of the disciples serves not only to convince the world, to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme locus of divine revelation as Christians claim, but that Christians themselves have been caught up in the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled because loved by the Almighty Himself with the very same love He reserves for the Son. Your God loves you more than anybody else in this history of the universe ever will. You know what that does for you? It makes you a better friend. It makes you a better follower of Christ. It makes you somebody who's willing to go the extra mile for others because you have been so loved by Christ and by God. It it takes away the fear of going to confront sin in somebody because what they have to say about you doesn't even match what your father has said about you. So listen, since God's love for you in Christ is so compelling and so satisfying, you can, you can lose yourself in the love of God. Christian, be amazed, be consumed with God's love for you in Christ. I'm just telling you, this will free you from your addiction to approval. This will free you from your fear of man. And it will keep us as a church from having chaos and conflict. Because we're willing to do the hard things. Because our God has called us to it. And our God loves us more than anybody else ever will. The third thing, last thing. We need to make the glory of God our highest aim. We need to keep this before us. Listen, in our church, we have said, if you're new with us, we've said this for years, as God grows the church, as God does his work, we have said, we want to build a church that when we step back after all the years of doing whatever we do here, and we would just say this, 
to God be all the glory. Right? God is the one that did this work. Not to us, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. That's what we want, right? Relationships to do, to have the glory of God as our highest aim. Relationships must be primarily about the glory of God. See, if relationships are about our personal needs, our preferences, our pet peeves, they are as fickle and as unstable as our needs, preferences, and pet peeves. But if we realize that relationships are primarily about the glory of God, then here's what we have. We have a constant, steady understanding of how to care for relationships and why relationships matter to God. That never changes. See, God's commands don't change. Why? Because God doesn't change. See, this matters to our marriages because our marriages are to reveal Jesus' relationship with His church. So when there's a conflict in your home, listen, parents, you, you are displaying the power of the gospel to your kids on how you resolve that conflict. You may think, oh, we've gone away in a private room. They can't hear a word we're saying. Uh, listen, we've learned recently our children like to stick their ear at the door. We didn't know that. That was a shock to us. And they're hearing, how do we resolve it? Parents, when you have a conflict with one of your children or you're raising your children, that's to be a portrait of how God parents and cares for his children. And we've seen this morning, this matters to the church. Because church relationships, Christian relationships, are to reveal to the world that God sent Jesus. That, that's a, that means the gospel is at stake in our relationships. See, when we make the glory of God our highest aim... We will look to God when relationships go south. We will seek to resolve conflicts in a manner that glorifies God. We'll be eager to forgive others because God has forgiven us in Christ. And we will be Christ-like because Christ, His highest aim, is the glory of God. See, this, this is one of the reasons why Jesus saved you. He saved you to transform you from living for your self-glory to living for His glory. To make the glory of God your highest aim so that you can pursue unity. You can work to maintain unity in the body of Christ rather than being a tool for Satan in conflict and division. So you can see that the gospel mission matters to this. We've got to make the glory of God. We've got to keep it there as our highest aim. So as we close this series, listen, we're going to do something a little different here. As we close, we're going to stand together. We're going to reach across these aisles. We're going to touch each other on the shoulder and we're going to pray. And we're going to commit ourselves to this. Listen, as a leadership team in our church, I will tell you this. We have committed ourselves to doing the little things of relationships well. And those little things are, we're going to stay humble. We're going to confess our sin when we see it. We're going to confront sin in one another if we see it. We're going to call each other to repent and change if necessary. This happened this last week in an elder meeting. I, I said something I thought was in pride. Next day in the meeting, that night, I got home. As I was driving home, praying through the meeting, I just text all the guys. Guys, I need to ask you to forgive me. Um, something came out of my mouth today. It was, it was about pride. It came out of pride. I'm afraid that I affected the conversation. Please forgive me. Every guy, you're forgiven, man. Thanks. No problem, man. I totally get it. We, we got through the conversation. No big deal, but I love you. We're, we're, we're in this thing. That's how we, we're committed to those things. Do those things over and over and over and over and over again. You know why? I'm a sinner. I know there's going to be sin coming out of me. Right? And you do too. You know that about me as well, right? I mean, make sure we're clear. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to pray together. We're going to commit ourselves 
to this. And we're going to ask God to protect us. And we're going to ask God to help us do the hard things. All right? So let's stand together. Let's move across the aisles. If you're up top, you just kind of touch somebody next to you or move next to somebody. Get around each other. Okay? Give room for the worship team because they got to get up front here too. Let's pray. Father, we, we gather together as a church recognizing our need, don't we, church? Father, we... Our sin would want nothing more than to separate and divide and fight and con- have conflict. But God, your, your work in us, the glory of God given to us, the gospel of Christ given to us matters more than our sinful tendencies. So as a church, Father, we, we commit ourselves to do these little things well, to confess sin, to be humble, to to confront sin, to protect from division, and to not let people park their gossip ships in our harbor, to, to do the things that you've called us to do in your word by your power. And we pray that you would let our relationships have an effect in this world for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel. We want non-Christians to come to know Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that our relationships would, would demonstrate the power of Christ and that Christ has come. And we pray that you would protect what we do here for your glory, for the advancement of your gospel, for non-Christians to come to Christ, and for the good of your people. And we as your people just say, yes, amen, we, we agree, we, we want that. And we thank you for your kindness to us. You, you have brought what we have. And so, Father, we, we ask you to help us. Go before us. Make, make us just be people that are desperately leaning in to Christ because we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.